Anal pathology. It's bread and butter general surgery, but if I'm being honest, getting the correct anal diagnosis can sometimes be a real pain in the butt. No, don't, don't leave. I promise I won't do that many dad jokes. So today we're gonna review the basics of anal fissures and hemorrhoids and rectal prolapse and fistula with an expert. I'll put in a little pilonidal. Uh, pilonidal is like its own talk, it's its own world. Uh, but I think when you talk about anal pathology, there are certainly crossover patients where they think it's pilonidal and it's actually a perianal problem and vice versa. They think it's perianal and it's actually a pilonidal problem. That's Dr. Nelson Rosen. He's a pediatric colorectal surgeon at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And he's gonna clear up some things for us. So stick around. This is the Stay Current Pediatric Surgery Podcast. So first we need to talk about some anal anatomy. So if you're listening to the State Current Pediatric Surgery app, which I hope you are, scroll down under the media player, you're gonna find an image there. I'm gonna walk you through it. Open it up. You know, we really define the, uh, the anal verge as like the mucocutaneous junction uh, where it stops being like pink, uh, wet, and starts being skin. So that's the convention for the distal portion of the anal canal, but the proximal portion is gonna have glands, it's gonna have crypts. Also referred as the crypts of Morgagni or Morgagni, depending on uh, if you know how to pronounce the name. Now, when you think of the patient in lithotomy position, then we can think of the anus as like a clock. And the 12 o'clock is anterior, three o'clock is left lateral, six o'clock is posterior, and nine o'clock is right lateral. But it, it gets kind of confusing. The ideal is to use the anatomic descriptors, left lateral, right lateral, anterior, posterior, and such. All right, now that we've mastered the basic anatomy, let's talk about anal fissures. It's a fairly common pathology in pediatric population. Similar to in adults, it's caused by a tear in the mucocutaneous junction from passing hard stool. And as you can guess, these freaking hurt. They are exquisitely painful. So commonly, fissures present with painful bowel movements and blood around the stool. On physical exam, there might just be a skin tag if the fissure isn't obvious. What they call a sentinel pile, basically uh, in the area near with a fissure, a heaped up lump of granulation that often becomes just regular, uh, covered with regular skin. That's a sign of chronic inflammation in that area. For all ages, constipation is the culprit and Constipation management is based on the Bristol stool scale. At Cincinnati Children's, patients get a fissure plan. If you want to read Dr. Rosen's plan, it's a multimodal approach. Scroll down under the media player, click on the link. We're going to give it to you there. I put people on a fissure plan and it includes softening of the stool. I give them a food list. We usually have them on a type of a laxative. Uh, I often use Miralax in the Fisher population. You heard it a million times, but kids are not just little adults. So in adults, you would move on with lateral sphincterotomy or manual stretching. But in kids, we want to reduce the anesthetic exposure and try topical agents instead. People have tried to avoid the sphincterotomy surgery uh, and the chemical sphincter relaxation really started coming into vogue in the late 90s. You know, I first heard about it 
I want to say 97, 98. Nitroglycerin works really well at sphincter relaxation. It allows for relaxation in about 80% of patients to experience healing. Uh, but nitroglycerin, for anybody who's used it, uh, has a fairly high rate of causing headaches. And then somebody thought, well, what are the other chemical ways that we can relax smooth muscle? And uh, cardizem gel, diltiazem gel, uh, has been used really, uh, you know, for the past 20 years uh, with pretty reasonable results. Okay, so mainstay for fissure treatment is constipation management. If that doesn't work, then we can move on with medical treatments. But the answer seems kind of easy. Just keep everyone a nice, cool Bristol Five. Well, you can't really think of it as that they're all constipated. And if your idea was that it's just because they push hard stool, Take a look at, 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 at babies when they poop. Sometimes you watch a baby push and they're pushing and they're, they're pushing and they're making the face and it's looking like they're pushing out a rock the size of Gibraltar. And then this squirt of mustard comes in the diaper and you're like, you did all that for that? The stooling physiology is complex and it's not always the stool consistency that generates the push and, and the degree of uh, pressures. Wow. I'm never gonna take a dirty diaper for granted ever again. What about common adult anal pathologies? Like, like hemorrhoids are really common in adults. Do we see that in kids? Uh, we get, I don't know, maybe about a dozen kids uh, referred uh, in a given year for hemorrhoids. Maybe one to two of them might actually be hemorrhoids. And so uh, relatively rare, it is the one of least common things that I'll get called about. So there are a few different types of hemorrhoids. You have the internal hemorrhoids, those can prolapse, they can bleed. You have the external hemorrhoids, those are super painful when they thrombose. But regardless of the type of hemorrhoid, you gotta treat the constipation. Uh, the mainstay of hemorrhoid management is still good constipation management. Plus, avoid excessive irritation from aggressive wiping. In America, it's become the culture that when you have stool at your bottom, you take wadded up bits of dry paper and rub that, that stool off. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's the culture. Whereas, uh, you know, people that use bidets or washlets or, you know, wet wipes or something uh, like a, a more of a wet cleansing is a little bit more efficient and a little bit less traumatic to the skin down there. I totally agree with Dr. Rosen. And if you're listening to this like Rod, do you even have one? No, I have two. Now, despite all these strategies of constipation management, decreasing irritation, medical topical agents, preparation H, tux pads, some cases still need an operation. Uh, there are times though that we will need to do a hemorrhoidectomy. Sometimes external hemorrhoids can cause irritation in these children also. And so uh, I have done external hemorrhoidectomies for children as well, uh, simple operation. So constipation plays a role in fissures and hemorrhoids, but that's not all. Think about rectal prolapse. Now rectal prolapse occurs most commonly in kids between age two and four when they're potty training. The key first step is a good diagnosis. So you have to do a good rectal exam. Uh, a rectal exam is essential because you go back, you have to make sure that you're not missing an intussusception. 
And an interception doesn't have to be the routine iliocolic interception of the kid with Pyre's patch hyperplasia from a viral illness or something. It can be an interception from an anatomic lead point in a polyp in the upper rectum or distal sigmoid. And you're going to differentiate that. If you try to stick your finger around this, in a prolapse, it will go nowhere. And in a, in a, in a interception, it'll go right next to it between the anal canal and the prolapse. Identifying normal rectal wall surrounding the prolapse mucosa is critical to diagnosing. And once you have that true diagnosis, then you might want to test for cystic fibrosis, depending on your level of suspicion. Pretty much every book chapter says that. Uh, that really does come from an era before uh, universal screening. In the era of universal screening, the numbers that I've seen for picking up a kid with uh, that was no history of cystic fibrosis, no concern, just on the basis of prolapse, is in the three to three and a half percent range. Doesn't mean zero. So let's think about a case. I'm on call, I get called down to the ED to see a four-year-old boy with rectal prolapse. So I sprinkle sugar on it, it reduces, no problem. But then the patient comes back the next week, the week after that, the week after that, the parents are frustrated, reasonably so. They say that the stool is soft, they're using Miralax. What do you do next? Well, here's what Dr. Rosen would do. This is a, there's a, this article is free online from uh, Sean St. Peter and Rebecca Renty. Uh, and this is a pretty good pathway. Yes, this article is linked below. Treat everything, if it keeps coming back, injection sclerotherapy uh, can be highly effective in my pathway. If they're getting down to the sclerotherapy and maybe more part, then I'm getting a contrast enema because laparoscopic rectopexy is a very effective procedure. So the contrast enema can help diagnose patients who have a floppy sigmoid and they need a sigmoid resection. But even after surgery, there's still more counseling to be done. Pelvic floor physical therapy in the older population because you can get them to stop prolapsing out but there's some pelvic floor laxity in, in the older population. Their pelvic floor opens up and that's not gonna get better with surgery, but that is gonna get better with pelvic floor physical therapy. Wow, I really underestimated the importance of staying regular. Switching gears, let's talk about an infectious pathology, perianal abscess. Now, perianal versus perirectal, it's all based on the anatomy, so let's take a look with an image. So this area here is perianal, but between the levator ani and the ischial tuberosities, that's the ischiorectal fossa. Here we call it perianal. When we have it up higher, then we refer to it as perianal, perirectal. For perianal abscess, age really matters. So first, in babies less than one, remember there's a strong male predominance. And second, doing a drainage procedure is not the next best step. This was actually one of my earliest projects uh, for Dr. Pena. Uh, he had an experience where he had a surgeon visiting from California, a Dr. James Warden, who was a uh, highly respected uh, pediatric surgeon. And uh, Dr. Pena had to excuse himself from his guest. I, like, I have a case to do. And he said, well, what are you going to go do? I, I'm going to go do a fistulotomy. He's like, oh, you, you still do those? Because I've stopped doing them. And they all go away. Wait, so I don't have to find and open the fistula? 
Not only do we think that most of these children don't need to go to the operating room for our fistulotomy, we don't think you should drain the abscess. Try and cool off the abscess with antibiotics because if you do, you will dramatically decrease the likelihood of forming a fistula in ano. I know it's hard when you have a very obvious abscess staring at you in the face, just begging to be drained. Don't do it, fight the urge, give them antibiotics, let it resolve on its own. This is based on a study from Dr. Rosen and Dr. Pena, and a second for the Center of Non-Operative Excellence. If you wanna read these articles to support this, scroll down under the media player, they're linked below. If the child persists with a fistula to age two, then, uh, and I'm not concerned for anything else, and I'll get to that in a second, then I will do a fistulotomy. We didn't stop doing the surgery because surgery didn't work. It is the anesthetic you are avoiding. Okay, so in younger kids, I have to fight the urge to drain. But in older kids, the same principles still apply. If you do drain it, I'm a big fan of the cruciate incision. Uh, you know, it really helps facilitate ongoing drainage. I'm a big fan of not packing. When I'll drain one of these abscesses, I might put the corner of a four by four in there just to give me some initial hemostasis. And then I'll wad up the rest of it on the outside. And then I'll tell them to go home and soak in the tub and that thing will fall off. And then they just put a top dressing over top. Wait, so Dr. Rosen, can we talk about how we actually find the fistula tract. I've been pimped too many times on Goodsall's rule. So if you have a fistula in the anterior anus, then it will follow out radially from the crypts. But if you have a posterior fistula, then it will take a curvilinear path to the posterior midline. Is that actually helpful? Goodsall's rule is really great and, and always uh, is true up until the next patient you see that uh, shows you that it's not true. So. It's a generalization and many people do follow it, like in terms of the patient, I mean, like their fistula will play along, but there's plenty of patients whose fistulas do not follow this rule. Like everything in medicine, there's a loophole. If you're concerned about a deeper abscess or Crohn's disease, there's no harm in getting age appropriate imaging, but there are also some associated risk factors that would make Crohn's disease more likely. But basically, this was the this was a work that that uh, was done here that looks at it from the direction of we looked at children that came with this perianal pathology, and then looked out to see who was later diagnosed with Crohn's. And if you're under 18, you presented with a fistula, 12% developed Crohn's, 5% of abscesses, 2% of fissures. Children over 10 years of age, when their symptom, when with their perianal symptom, 13%. And if, if that symptom was a fistula, that group had 35% likelihood of having Crohn's. And then looking back at the children eventually diagnosed with Crohn's, 64% of them had abdominal symptoms that you could pair with their perianal symptom and say this might be a high risk patient. You guessed it, papers linked below. For those patients with high suspicion for Crohn's disease or really complex disease like recurrent infections, multiple fistula, then you're gonna wanna do an exam under anesthesia and consider putting a non-cutting seton for drainage. This population, you'll need to send for GI workup. 
If the workup is negative and then they have an ongoing fistula, then you can take to the operating room and the standard adult pathway is fistulotomy for superficial fistulas. But some aren't superficial. Suprasphincteric or intersphincteric fistula, they need a different treatment plan or we could risk causing incontinence. And in that situation, we use uh, Cook makes a bioprosthetic plug where you scrub the tract, place the plug, stitch it in place on the inside and on the outside. And it has about a 60, 70% likelihood of uh, healing the situation. Now, I think we have a good handle on perianal disease, but it can get even more tricky. Think about pilonidal disease. I mean, it can present really close to the anal verge and look like a perianal abscess. And the treatment plan for pilonidal disease is, is totally different. That's, that's hair removal, that's hygiene, that's surgery, that's wound care. So really what you wanna keep in mind is that you do a really good physical exam for all of these patients with perianal pathology. The eye only sees what the mind suspects. You have to have this in your thoughts at all times. So overall, perianal disease is quite literally a sensitive topic and treatment algorithms are based on specific disease diagnoses. You wanna make sure you do a really good physical exam so you're diagnosing the right anal pathology. So there you have it. Did you love this episode? If so, follow us on social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Download the State Current Pediatric Surgery app. It's in the Apple App Store. It's in the Google Play Store. But until next time, I'm Rod from Cincinnati Children's. And remember, knowledge should be free.